Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December the 7th, 2023. I guess that would be remiss if I didn't tell you what every talking head will tell you on the TV and radio today. It is the Remembrance Day for Pearl Harbor, the day that will live in infamy December 7th, 1941. I will spare you telling you why and why I believe that we knew that attack was coming and allowed it to happen. But I do believe that. I believe that's a pattern. We can go all the way back. I don't even know how far we can go back. I've never deep dived past World War I, honestly. Is the U.S.'s involvement in wars and using things like in Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, in World War One, the sinking of the Lusitania, where the Germans literally put an ad in the New York Times that said, don't get on the Lusitania because it is a ship bringing supplies to England, who is our enemy in a time of war, and we will sink it. And the United States government said, ah, don't worry about it, they won't do that, get on the boat anyway. I'll let that go. Anyway, because we got other things to talk about today, leading off, as always, the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Uh, we have some really cool stuff for you there. We have Dr. Paul and uh, Chris Rossini uh, talk, I'm sorry, we have Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams they're going to talk to you about a new poll. The majority of Americans want a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts on it after that. I think that it, it, I have the same... See, this is the thing. If you have uniform principled standards in all things, you don't have to change them. I think it's not our business. I think it's those horrible things that the Hamas are doing. It's horrible things that is, the Israelis are doing. I've said this before, there's horrible things that are happening between two countries all the time, and we only intervene when we believe it is in our best interest from a standpoint of our ability to influence the world and tell them what to do or to profit. So I think if we simply didn't involve ourselves, whenever there would be a ceasefire and an end to this madness, it would be sooner. And in the words, words of Sun Tzu, no nation has ever benefited from a prolonged war. Chris Rossini will talk about how all these problems we have in front of us, when you get right down to it, counterfeit money did this to us. Jack, counterfeit money? You're talking about like criminals. Yeah, I'm talking about criminals, but they, they have titles, like government official titles and Federal Reserve titles. We mean the, the legalized counterfeiting that is the money printing scheme of modern money. That's what we're talking about there. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about dealing with kidney stones. Tim Toolman-Cook will talk about the ins and outs of propane-powered zero-turn mowers. i got to say, it doesn't surprise me that such a thing exists, but I never even thought about like propane-powered lawnmower, period. Never even thought about it. Nicole Sauce will talk about storing fat and lard for long-term use. Dr. Bones will talk about the skinny on prostitutes. you got a swollen prostate, what you could do about it. Nick Ferguson has a twofer for you, transplanting trees and running misting timers. And then I have an interesting one. This was sent in, and it was actually sent in for an expert council member. And when I thought about it, I'm like, the, probably the most qualified person to answer this question based on their professional background and their resume with movement is me. And I've been a very stably employed person for the last 15 years hosting this podcast and I've said, 
the only thing that I have done longer than host this podcast is be a father and a husband. And that's true. I moved around a lot in my career. So the question is, how long should you keep a job before moving to the next opportunity? And as you might imagine, I will fall back to my favorite answer of, it depends. But don't worry, as always, when I say it depends, I will tell you what it depends upon. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our first uh, group of experts today, Dan McAdams, Ron Paul, and Chris Rossini. Majority of American voters want U.S. to call for permanent Gaza ceasefire. And I think some of the things that are happening, uh, well, first of all, I have to say social media has changed this, specifically Twitter. Because since Elon Musk has come in and has opened it up for a real debate, you have a lot of citizen journalists, you have a lot of fact checkers, you have a lot of people like um, Max Blumenthal, for example, uh, who has really dug into what happened on October 7th and found some interesting things about it. And you're having people who are debunking propaganda in real time. These are significant things. And so while the mainstream media still has a hold on the majority of American people, more and more people are looking for alternatives. That, I think, is why we're seeing things like this. A polling continues to show the majority of Americans favor a lasting ceasefire for Gaza, a position the Biden administration has rejected. The latest poll from Data for Progress found that 61% of American voters support the idea of the U.S. calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and a general de-escalation of violence. Now, this is where Biden is in trouble. It includes 76% of Democrats. And this is surprising because you wouldn't see this. 49% of Republicans. Okay, so it's not a majority of Republicans, but you're factoring all the neocons, all of the uber hawks and this. When you even factor all these people in, you're almost at 50-50 people saying we don't want any part of this. And I think one of the things that is behind this, Dr. Paul, is the realization, and more and more people are seeing this, that this is America's war. We are supplying the bombs. We're supplying the weapons. We're supplying the drones. We're supplying the intelligence. We're supplying the targeting. This is just like Ukraine. This is America's proxy war to a degree. Now, it's not an even fit, but our proxy war in the Middle East. We own this war and I think a lot of Americans are saying, no thanks. So what our leaders have uh, become dependent on is that this one's different because we're going to avoid the body bags. And uh, Vietnam and other things, they would have tried to hide them, which they couldn't get away with. But now they have devised this system where it's our money and all the things that you list, all the responsibility. So we're into this big time, but still the people... Uh, you know, didn't see body bags and they're told, well, the American soldiers aren't dying. And even even Israelis will say, you know, we don't want we don't have to have the American. Troops. We just want your money, and your weapons and, yeah. and, and take care of it. So that uh, that to me means that uh, uh, this is a good news story in the sense fact that people woke up absence the gory details of what happened in Vietnam where they started reporting uh, you know what was happening and you and you point out back then it was the 
television and things that were coming through. But now we have something faster yeah. than the news on television. We, we, have, we have the Internet, and uh, that makes a difference. This is good, and I think that the American people, uh, out of their own self-interest, and it has to be out of their own self-interest, that they have to look at this as, what does this mean? What, what does this mean? And uh, I keep emphasizing the economics because that's the one that comes home. And I also wanted to bring up President Biden, one of his tweets. You know, of course, politicians never blame themselves, so they have to blame someone else for the inflation. And uh, his tweet was funny. He says, let me be clear. And, you know, whenever they start with let me be clear, get ready because they're about to snow you. So he says, let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought prices back down, even as inflation has come down. It's time to stop the price gouging. Give Americans consumers a break. Now, this is such deception. Inflation is not down. Inflation is still up. It's just less than several months ago, but it's still rising. Prices are still rising. It's, uh, it's the same as when government uh, spends more one year over the previous year, but if it's a less percentage, they call it a cut. They're cutting and everything is going to fall apart, but they're still spending more. So it's the same thing with inflation. That's how they deceive you. And I feel bad, uh, even though they are on the, the, uh, the rotten end of the stick for the businesses that create products, because they have to adapt. They, their, their prices are also rising, and they have to, they, their consumers <coughs> expect to pay relatively the same thing. So what are they supposed to do? And that's why we see shrinkflation. You see the package gets a little bit smaller, but the price, when you go to the store, is still the same. So you feel like you're... And they really have, that's their option, because they can't go to everybody and, and teach everybody economics and say, you know, this is why we're doing this. We're getting squeezed. We have to stay in business. We have to stay profitable to stay in business. They can't go and explain to everybody, but consumers are still upset and because you could see it. I see it when I go to the store. You're getting less, but paying the same amount that you did before. But you know you're getting less. And it's easy to just blame, oh, it's the company, it's the company. And that's what Biden is doing here. He's trying to blame them. But it's the Bidens, it's the Trumps, it's the Obamas, it's all of them that spend trillions and trillions of dollars that they do not have, that the Federal Reserve prints, and that's why the dollar loses its value continually. But they will never point the fingers at themselves, which is where it belongs. Very yeah, on, on the, the Gaza-Israeli thing, I'm for a ceasefire in any war, because I don't want to see people die. But I'm back to what we want doesn't mean a fucking thing to Israel. Israel feels like they're fighting for their life. You can believe it, you cannot believe it. You know, just like the chick on the airplane. But that's how Israel feels. And you, if you were in Israel, you just might feel the same way. And then people say, well, Israel's done horrible things to the Palestinian people. Okay, I agree. But all I've seen is that every time we touch a thing, we make it worse. But I want to point out a couple ironies here. One, we have students all over the United States having all these fits, and that's what they are. They're not protests, they're fits. They're adult tantrums. All over the place, chanting shit that is genocidal toward the Jewish people of Israel, and by the way, the Christians as well. And most likely, I'm just saying, if you understood the region fully all the arabic people that actually live in israel because there are shit tons of arabs who are muslim 
who live in Israel proper, and they live there without conflict. And if the people of uh, the, these regions have their way, it's probably the case that all of them are in deep shit if they were to win. Okay? I don't have an opinion on who should win. Because I don't know enough about the situation. I do know the following. This idea that Israel wasn't populated with Jewish people prior to 1947 is ridiculous. I mean, Jesus was born in Jerusalem like 2,000 years ago, I'm just saying. Like, this idea that this used to be Palestine and the Palestinian people controlled it is nonsense. There has never been a time, and I defy you to tell me when, Palestine, as it's defined today as being all of Israel, basically, or most of Israel, was ruled by Palestinians. Tell me when it happened, and I will tell you that it didn't. It was controlled by the, the, the Romans, the Ottomans, and the British. And the British, and the people that called it Palestinia, called it Judea Palestinia, and it was the Romans who named it that. Okay? So that's 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 a little history lesson. We're not going to make a giant history lesson out of this, but that's the reality here. But there's there's some more ironies I see in these adult tantrums. First of all, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. None. But we do have a conflict that is based on religious ideology. That's what it's based on. If you remove the religious ideology, we would even if there was a conflict, it wouldn't be anything like it is today. And radical Islam is a thing, whether you want to accept it or not. I'm sorry it is. And you have most of these adults, these young adults, these morons, these 18 to 26-year-old idiots, who all think they're transgendered because it's cool now, who if they went to Gaza, they would be thrown off a building for their transgressions against Allah. I'm sorry, it's true. But most of them are fucking atheists. They're taking side in a religious conflict as an atheist. This is, this is ironic to me. Now, here's the biggest irony. I guarantee you, the vast majority of these people, if you say, should we continue to fund Ukraine for democracy, would say, yes, we should. And if you said, why? And they would, Putin's an evil dictator or whatever. Okay, Putin has done nothing compared to what has been done in the name of radical Islam in the Middle East, period, infinity. I'm sorry. Nothing compared to it. Nothing compared to it. The situation is very similar. If you break it down to brass tacks, you have an area, Gaza, that used to be part of Egypt, by the way. All right, Until a bunch of companies launched a fucking war on Israel, the Gaza Strip was part of Egypt. And when Israel whooped ass in that war, they took it and they gave it to the Palestinian people. Yeah? And what you have now is people saying, well, they should have freedom and independence. Well, they don't want freedom and independence as Gaza. They don't want to turn the Gaza Strip into Palestine proper. They want to, from the river to the sea, cleanse the entire land of every Jew. That's their stated goal. Okay? But if we said, okay, that's what they really want. Okay, instead of having Israel... Say, Gaza is under our overall control, but they can control it locally, which is where it is right now. Like, there is no Israeli presence inside Gaza other than the invasion force that went there after Hamas attacked Israel. Yeah? Okay. But let's just say that they were willing, because do you know this? How about this? Since this whole shit started, the modern version of it in 1947, all of the peace negotiations that were done, 
the PLO, Hamas, Palestinian Authority, all of it. Do you know that there has never been a single time where a single member of the Palestinian people has ever sat down in official peace talks with the government of Israel? Ever. Not once. Not one time have they sat down with Israel's diplomats and said, how can we work this out? Because they don't want to. But let's say they did. We just want Gaza and the West Bank to be independent sovereign territory. We run ours, you run yours, and we stay out of your face and you stay out of ours. That's what most Americans think is wanted there. Okay. How's that different from the 90 plus percent ethnic Russians in Donbass who say they don't want to be part of Ukraine? How is it different? Well, it's lacking a certain religious fanaticism. Other than that, see, here's the deal. We don't give a shit as a country about what's morally right in these situations. We care about what benefits us, our banking class, our elite class, and our oligarch class, and our industrialist class. And I don't mean industrial people. I mean the people that make more money than God and buy regulation. That's, that's all we care about. Because if we really cared about the sovereignty of the Palestinians... Now, shouldn't we care about everybody's sovereignty? If we really cared about self-determination, shouldn't we care about everybody's self-determination? So, there's no easy answer to this. If you say, Jack, well, what would you do? I only have one answer. I would tell Israel, okay, this is your fucking problem. You've created this problem. It is up to you to solve it. It is up to you to solve it. And I would tell the Gazans and the people that live in the West Bank that call themselves penitentiary, you've actually made your own situation far worse. The people you've elected have oppressed your own people as much as they have caused problems with Israel. It's your problem. You solve it. And I would get the fuck out of the way. Would that result in something good? I don't know. But what it would do is wash our hands of being fucking involved. It would wash our hands of being involved in a part of the world that we should have kept our nose out of in the first place. And if you don't think the Israeli military can stand up to these people without us taking money out of the pockets of the average American to fund their war, then you are delusional. You're delusional. Really. It, 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 this all goes back to Nikki Haley's hysterical rant in one of the debates. The United States needs Israel. The Israel does not need the United States. You notice how that, that never came out of her mouth again? Never came out of her mouth again. Because right after she said that, it turns out... Now the neocon has to say, and the neolib has to say, oh, the Israel needs the United States. I didn't mean for that to go that long. Let's go on to something else. Talk about kidney stones with Dr. Ken Berry. Hello to all you, the Survival Podcast listeners. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Van. Uh, are people on keto carnivore diets susceptible to kidney stones from too much protein? I saw this claim pop up under a friend's post where he mentioned going carnivore and breaking his sugar addiction. A quick Internet search says that too much protein causes kidney stones. Can you shed some light on this? Yes, this is a load of crap. There is no research that showing that a high protein diet increases your risk of kidney stones. There is no physiological mechanism for this to happen in the human body. This is a myth. Some people would call this a lie. Uh, most plant-based, plant-based doctors actually believe this is true, uh, and they'll repeat this as if it is true. But if you ask that plant-based loving doctor, 
oh, that's interesting. Could you print me out the research that shows that? They will be stumped. They will have no answer because that research does not exist. There are actually things known to cause kidney stones, and I made a YouTube video about this, the title of which is Secret Cause of Kidney Stones Your Doctor Doesn't Know. Watch that video and you'll understand what actually causes kidney stones. 80 or 85 percent of kidney stones are calcium oxalate stones. And so, again, many doctors mess up until they put their patients on a low calcium diet, thinking that will prevent forgetting the other word in the name of those stones, oxalate. And so if any of you guys have ever developed a kidney stone in the past, there should be a pathology report of what that stone was made of, because any good doctor is going to send that kidney stone off to pathology to figure out which kind it is, because there's about eight different kinds. Each different kind is made of different things and therefore has a different cause. But if your kidney stone is calcium oxalate, it's caused from too many oxalates in your diet. And so if any of you guys have a kidney stone, make sure your doctor sends it to pathology. If you've had one in the past, look at the pathology report. 85% chance it's a calcium oxalate stone. And that will tell you you need to be on a very, very low oxalate diet or an oxalate-free diet. And the, the what diet is that? It's the carnivore diet. And so anybody who's had kidney stones in the past, if they don't want to have another one, the carnivore diet will protect them from kidney stones in the future, unlike any other diet on the planet. Hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. Good stuff from Ken. And I know sometimes people think, well, Ken always has the same answer. Minimize carbs to almost nothing or go carnivore. Maybe there's a reason he always has the same answer. Maybe because he spent all those years as a doctor, he went through medical school, he did all the things that they tell you to do. And then one day, he started saying, if I'm giving this advice, I should be able to back it up with research. And he looked for the research and found out that it wasn't there. And he started doing research beyond everybody knows. Because this, let me explain to you what a doctor is saying to you. When they say that, well, you need to do this thing, but then there's no clinical studies that isolate the thing to back up what they're saying. They're giving you a version of, well, everybody knows. They're giving you a version of, well, everybody knows. They're giving you a version, whether they realize it or not, they're giving you a version of when you have a company like Pfizer, uh, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, etc., that they use the term vaccines as though all vaccines are equal. If, if, if the vaccine for smallpox was safe, well, then the vaccine, and effective, by the way, because the small, I don't care, some of you guys are a little bit over the top with the anti-vax stuff. Now, remember, the, the vax crowd thinks I'm like more anti-vax than Alex Jones and RFK Jr. put together times 10, right? And I'm saying that, okay? Um, but the smallpox vaccine was effective, period. The chickenpox vaccine is effective. Now, I think it's led to a epidemic of shingles, which gives them an opportunity to sell another vaccine that doesn't really... The shingles vaccine is shit, doesn't work worth a damn, but okay. But the chickenpox vaccine, have you seen a kid with chickenpox lately? No, so you haven't got your snot slinger booster recently. That's why you have a higher chance of getting shingles than you would have 50 years ago. But it worked, and we didn't have a lot of kids falling on the ground and dying or getting myocarditis from the chickenpox vaccine. I'm not even saying it's a good thing to do. I'm just saying that's the truth. 
And the equivalency, the false equivalency comes in when they say, well, vaccines are safe and effective. What the fuck does that mean? That's like saying drugs are safe and effective. Which drug? At which dosage? For which patient? All of this matters. But we'll just sweep it all away. It's a version of, well, everybody knows. People smart. I've actually talked to people in this audience that have had doctors put it this bluntly. People smarter than both of us say this is what we should do. I'm sorry, that's not good enough for me. So the reason you get the same answer from Ken is because Ken has watched people in his audience of way over a million people use the same solution on all these different things and get very positive results. That's why. Moving on, let's talk about propane-powered zero-turn lawnmowers. Something that does, you know, makes perfect sense to me that they exist, but I never knew existed. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Mick, and he said, Hey Jack, I got a question for Toolman Tim. Hey Tim, wondering if you could talk through the pros and cons of a propane-powered zero-turn lawn tractor. I currently have an old, in, in parentheses, John Deere 160 that came with my house, which was purchased by the original owner back in 88, and it's very near its end. I also had to check my generators recently because of some of the storms that were coming through. They are propane powered, and after not running for a couple of years, I hooked them up to propane, checked the oil, pulled the starter twice, and each started right up. Shortly after, I was looking at the used mowers on the local marketplace sites, I saw one of them that was propane, and it occurred to me that it might be a good option there as well. It seems they run much cleaner, which should make it a more reliable option. Only unusual requirement for my situation is I use it with a cyclone rake leaf vacuum to clean up my 1.2 acres. Otherwise, I'm just mowing somewhat regularly. Thanks for your thoughts. Okay, I love this question. I was around the peripheral of propane-powered mowers. I knew they existed. I'd kind of looked at them a couple of times, but this forced me to do a deep dive into these because anybody who follows me know I love propane and I love propane excess. No, sorry, anyway. <laughs> propane and natural gas. I, I do. I, they have a lot of benefits. Now, let's dive into what the benefits, and there are some cons to the idea of a propane-powered zero-turn. Number one, get yourself a zero-turn. Anybody out there who doesn't have one, it is a game-changer, and it will, you, you'll love it. It's such a joy to be on those things. Okay, so let's dive into the propane end of things. What are the benefits of propane? Most people know a lot of these, but number one, it stores virtually forever. As long as the tank doesn't rust through, the propane you put in there today will be just as good in 100 years as it is today. Number two, it is safer to store than gasoline. All things considered, you have much more a high likelihood of gasoline becoming volatile or spilling or rupturing the canister or catching on fire or whatever else than propane. Simple as that. There's zero spills with propane uh, compared to gasoline. Again, a lot of these benefits are very similar to some of the battery-powered gear I've used, but again... You're not dealing with gasoline, spilling it, mixing it, anything like that. Overall, propane engines have significantly less maintenance than gasoline. It has partly to do with the fact that they run a little bit cooler than a gasoline engine, but it's also uh, much less messier, easier on the carburetor. It's going to start every damn time. That's what I love about propane and natural gas. I have a tri-fuel generator. I haul that thing out. I hook it up to natural gas. The thing starts. Simple as that. Another lesser-toted feature is less exhaust and smell. 
wherever you fall on certain issues, the fact that you don't have to smell like a an exhaust pipe when you're done mowing is a benefit for sure. And the engines overall, again, last longer. Okay, so that's the benefits to propane. And if you stop there, you'd be like, yeah, that sounds really good. And if you go on the internet and you look up a bunch of different websites that say, hey, what are the benefits of propane mowers? They're going to list all those. And then the next one they're going to say is it's going to save you money. And I kind of have to cry a little bit of bull on this one. So let's break down a few things. Because first off, there's way less propane mowers on the market. Now, this doesn't mean I'm anti-propane, but we need to be honest about this stuff. Uh, John Deere and Toro both have propane mowers. They're both in their high-end commercial line. So that means you're going to pay significantly more for them. Just something to think about. Do you need a commercial mower? It wouldn't hurt, especially when you're pulling that leaf cyclone. You've got 1.2 acres of grass, so, you know, could you get by with a, a residential? Sure you could, but I definitely like having commercial. So you're going to pay more. you got to buy a commercial one. Next, you need to have the propane tanks. They're a semi-proprietary 33 to 43 pound tank. They're very similar to what you'll see on the back of forklifts in building supply places and that sort of thing. They run kind of in the $300 range. So first off, you're going to pay more for the mower. Secondly, you're going to pay more for the propane tank. And of course, if it were me, I'd either have a setup at home to refill it myself off of a big propane pig, or I would buy a second tank so that I didn't need to run out in the middle of it because that would really suck. So then you're at a couple of tanks. Whatever. That's a sunk cost wherever you want to go with it. But the next thing is, they always say how much cheaper propane is than gasoline. And that is true on the surface, but we need to run some numbers just to be safe. On average, gasoline will give you 27% more power for the same gallon of fuel than propane will. So yes, let's do a little more math. Right now, as of recording, the average price of gasoline in the U.S. is $2.53 a gallon. Propane is $2.40 a gallon, which means you're going to save $1.13 per gallon. However, subtract the 27% power loss that you're going to get with gasoline to propane. That brings it down to $2.58, means really you're only going to save around $0.18 a gallon, give or take a bit. So... The money savings, boy, I don't know. It, 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 by the time you spend the extra on the mower, the extra on the tank, it, it's not that great. But the convenience end of things, especially if you already, here's what I'm looking at. I, I love standardizing on a type of fuel. That's always a good thing if you can handle it. Now, you can also look at getting conversion kits for existing propane mowers, but that's another story for another day. But if you have a big tank of propane already on your property and you can figure out how to tap into that or you can have somebody set it up so that you can refill your own propane canisters then i would say that might be a really good option it's going to cost you a lot more to store a bunch of propane on hand for a just-in-case emergency though if you want to do that so again it's one of those great big it depends would it be great to have standardization on propane across the board yeah it would but boy, the cost up front makes it a little difficult uh, and a little bit loss in power. But overall, I love the idea of propane. Uh, I think probably what you're going to end up seeing is a lot of the propane stuff is going to be replaced with electric battery units eventually. I love my battery cordless gear. It's great. 
but it's not quite there yet for some of these things. I haven't tried a zero-turn mower with battery. I know that wasn't your question, but I feel like companies are going to go more toward that and less and less toward propane. Husqvarna released a propane zero turn in 2010 and quickly discontinued it. So there's the other issue is you're probably going to be dealing with products that end up getting discontinued. And then where do you find the parts for them? So I hope that helps. If you want to follow up with me, you can email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com or send it to Jack. If you guys have other questions for him, for me, send them along. I love questions like this that force me to do a deep dive into the comparisons of different fuels, that sort of thing. So keep them coming. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, go to your podcast feed and add Workshop Radio. And you will get your daily, well, your, your three times weekly dose of motivation, killing the poverty mindset, entrepreneurship, and uh, a fair bit of just fun banter and humor that I think you guys would enjoy. So with that, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. The only thing I'm going to comment here on is the money saving and how that can actually work to your advantage. The market for propane, oil, diesel, gas, all of it is volatile. We all know that. It goes up and down. The beauty of propane is its storage capacity is indefinite. If you have a propane tank and it's 10 years old, that propane is as good as the day it was pumped into that tank. It doesn't go bad like gas does. So it allows you to take what I call the airline approach, the Southwest airline approach, more with your fuel needs than it than gas or diesel, etc. would. And what I mean is when you have a significant drop in the market, if you have the ability to do your own refills with a big pig, whatever amount of propane is in your pig, I don't care if it needs 20% to be full or 50% to be full, you call your propane dealer and say, come out here and fill it up. And you buy it when it's cheapest. And you always top it off when the price goes down. You dollar cost, you do modified dollar cost averaging on your fuel purchases. I think if you do that versus the way people handle gas for lawnmowers in general, you'll end up with a lower overall cost. I don't know if it's worth it, but you will. I do like that it is actually a lot easier on engines, and it is less stinky when you burn it. That's, it's, there is no doubt that natural gas, and propane is just a version thereof, is a much cleaner fuel to burn than gasoline. It's just much cleaner, and it's much cleaner all the way through the process, thinking about what you start out with that comes out of the ground versus crude and refinement, et cetera, versus how gas is produced. It, it's just a cleaner fuel, so it's a good thing, in my opinion, for the environment. That's CO2. I can't go there today. I can't deal with people like that today. I am sorry. You are delusional. You need to read more, and you need to read things that are not put out by the mainstream, and you might learn something about it. Let's move on. Let's hear from Doc Bones, and Doc Bones is going to talk, uh, talk to us today about dealing with prostate issues. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Oh, I almost forgot. Also, the co-author, along with Nurse Amy, of the brand new children's storybook, called Snowbee, the First Snowman. That is out on Amazon. You'll find it on Amazon or on our website, store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from an anonymous listener who we'll call um, Andy. He writes, 
Doc Bones, I'm 51 years old and in relatively good health. Earlier this year, I had problems with urinary flow and some erectile dysfunction issues, so I met with a urologist. I used to run local races and some half marathons, wow, up until COVID, but I'm a fat, skinny person these days and sit at a computer all day. Six feet, 195 pounds. Not bad, Andy, not bad at all. My urologist did a few tests and measurements and determined my prostate was moderately inflamed. PSA level was well within normal range. That's a blood test that may identify prostate cancer in some cases. We discussed diet, which surprised me. My doctor suggested cutting caffeine down to one drink a day. I was drinking a coffee in the morning, tea around lunch, and soda or tea with dinner, usually a total of four to five drinks. He also put me on alfuzazin. That's also called uh, urotrexol, I think. Uh, after a few days, I had side effects. My legs and lower back began aching. The longer I was on it, the worse it became until I had trouble sleeping. I stopped taking it and followed up with the doctor. It took a couple of days for the side effects to wear off. On my follow-up visit to the doctor, he measured my prostate again and said it was less inflamed. I told him about my problem with alfuzazin, so he put me on tamsulazin. That's also called Flomax. This time I took it for a few weeks and began having the same side effects, but the pain was nearly all over my body. It was the same achiness like before, but it just wasn't in the legs and lower back. It hurt all over my body this time, and I could not find a comfortable position. I was in less pain if I walked around when compared to sitting or laying down. So when I was sure it was the side effect of the tamsulosin, I stopped taking it. This time, it took about a week for the side effects to wear off and feel better. I saw a correlation. The longer it took for the onset of side effects, the longer it took for them to dissipate. After about a month of limiting my caffeine, my urinary flow is much better and the erectile dysfunction issue has gone away despite the fact that I'm not taking the medicine. I thought this would be a good to share with the TSP community because I've never heard of connection between prostate issues and too much caffeine. I would also be interested in any advice or words of wisdom you might have to share. I appreciate your generous time to the community. Thank you, Andy. Well, you're very welcome. The prostate gland's normal size is about the size of a walnut, I'd say, uh, located just below the bladder in men and surrounds the top portion of the urethra. That's the tube that drains urine from the body. The prostate and other sex glands produce a fluid called semen that transports sperm along during ejaculation. Andy, at your age, men begin to experience enlargement of the prostate, a condition known as benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. This can cause issues with urinary flow, and possibly erectile dysfunction, although not as much, at least early. And you are, indeed, awfully young for prostate cancer, so a blood test like the PSA being within normal range pretty much makes that a very unlikely diagnosis. So let's assume your doctor's diagnosis is correct, and you have some kind of inflammation in the prostate instead, and we call that prostatitis. Prostatitis often causes painful or difficult urination, as well as pain in the groin, pelvic area, or even genitals. Bacterial infections cause some, but not all cases of prostatitis, it can come all of a sudden or it can be a chronic problem. Some people have an inflamed prostate without even knowing it. It could be asymptomatic. You don't mention how the doctor ruled out a bacterial infection, but you weren't offered antibiotics, so. Caffeine is pretty well known to cause a number of issues, so let's talk about that. It affects the prostate in the following ways. It aggravates an enlarged prostate, worsening symptoms by increasing the rate of urine production, boosting the urge to urinate frequently, that's called frequency, and the sudden and intense need to urinate, that's called urgency. Andy, you didn't mention how your prostate compares in size to the average size prostate. You just mentioned it was inflamed, so let's assume it's not very enlarged. 
Caffeine can also cause discomfort in the very lower part of the abdomen. It can lead to dehydration, a bad thing for any kind of GU or genital urinary function issues in general, including all the way up to the kidneys, by the way. And as in your case, it indeed can increase prostatic inflammation and make it difficult to urinate. So it's reasonable to limit your intake of coffee, tea, and sodas unless they're caffeine-free or at least caffeine-limited. Now, being older than you, I've had my share of prostate issues. I've been offered Tamsulosin also, that's called Flomax, and Alfluozosin, Uretraxel. These drugs work to treat benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH, in adult men by relaxing the muscles in your prostate and bladder, which can reduce the symptoms and improve your quality of life and your ability to urinate. As with all medicines, however, there are indeed side effects which affect some people more than others. After reading the possible side effects, which by the way, they are numerous and which you have experienced some, I decided not to take either of these medicines and just soldier on. Your letter just confirms my personal opinion, but I will say that some men swear by one or the other of these medicines and it might help indeed avoid or at least delay invasive surgical procedures in elderly men. Despite that, some simple lifestyle changes like decreasing caffeine intake can indeed make a difference as it did in your case. Consider yourself lucky that all you needed was a little tincture of time, that's T-I-M-E, and that it worked for you. Some additional things that I would add here, Andy, is to make sure that you know how your doctor knows that you just have inflammation but not infection. If infection hasn't been ruled out, it should because you could need antibiotics for a while, up to several weeks. Of course, if you're experiencing pain, consider ibuprofen or or acetaminophen, that's Advil, Motrin, or Tylenol, and also make sure that they follow up at your doctor's office with non-invasive tests like sonograms to monitor the prostate over time. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about Off-Grid Medical Topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I agree. Given it's not a BPH marker issue, um, you probably do want to rule out infection, that there's not some sort of bacterial thing going on or something like that. I would point out that in the natural world, there are some things that have been shown to be very effective. Probably the most effective, with the most, let's say, um, uh, ancillary evidence. I, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but it's, it's escaping me right now. What I mean is not backed up by clinical trials, which I don't trust anyway, is saw palmetto. Now, here's what happened with saw palmetto. I believe saw palmetto is another thing that has been maligned by the powers that be so they can sell drugs that cause side effects and kill you, okay? Um, Saw palmetto has been used by people with enlarged prostates, and they have noticed an improvement. This is the thing. There's no way around this. So what NIH did, and we all know about NIH, at least we should at this point, that they can't be trusted, is they ran clinical trials in larger studies. They said it didn't work. But what they did, they took people with elevated BPH, and they gave them saw palmetto instead of it didn't reduce BPH. No one ever said it did. No one ever said it did. This person doesn't have that problem. That's not why they have an inflamed prostate. So that would be something to look at. Uh, Another supplement that has shown really strong evidence 
um, that it can help with non-cancerous prostate enlargement is stinging nettle. Stinging nettle. And there's also been some pretty encouraging things about using ryegrass pollen extract. So those are just some things. I don't have any experience with this directly that I would say that are worth looking at. There's some other stuff out there. On the saw palmetto thing, though, I used to work for a man named Gail. And, you know, men don't really like to talk about this, but his wife told me that he was having this exact issue. Enlarged prostate, but not a cancer concern, at least at the time. And I told, and this was back in the 90s, and I told her about saw palmetto. And so my one direct experience is actually an indirect one off. But apparently within three months, it was just not an issue anymore. So it's worth looking into. And I would also say diet, yeah, I worry less about caffeine and more about all these inflammatory things people eat. So I'm back to the other Dr. Ken Berry that maybe you need to look at keto carnivore here. Because so much of this plant-based diet bullshit is inflammatory. There's so much inflammatory shit in our food. Even if you eat all natural, but you're doing plant-based. And I'm going to tell you, this is a hard thing to explain to people until they experience it. When you go off all that shit, and you eat a true ketogenic, ketovore, carnivore diet for 90 days or more, and then you do what I, again, I don't like the term cheat day, but you have a cheat day, because I believe cheating is something you do to get an advantage, and cheating in this case hurts you. You do a cheat day or two. You experience body aches that you were always experiencing, and you didn't know it. You didn't know it because you became accustomed to your misery. So I would say those are a couple places to look as well. With that, let's move on. I skipped and I caught myself so we won't not have it. Uh, Nicole Sauce's segment. So now we're going to talk about storing lard and fats. Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Jesse. Jesse says, how long is pork fat that's been rendered good for on the shelf? By the way, guys, rendered pork fat shall be referred to as lard from here out on this particular segment. My wife and I had our butcher keep the fat from the pig we slaughtered to render it. We've never done it before. Wasn't sure if it was better to keep it in the freezer or render it and store it on the shelf. We use bacon fat, coconut oil normally, and haven't needed to store much, but wanted to have it available. We normally use coconut oil for making soap, toothpaste, and other baking needs. Okay, lard. Here's the thing about this question is it really depends on the lard you make, how long it will last, and different storage methods can extend that lifetime. The only information I can give you is from personal experience because when looking at the official numbers, they're just official numbers, and that does not match my experience at all. So let's start with home canned lard. Home canned lard can be shelf-stable up to a year before it starts smelling rancid. In order for it to go rancid, exposure to light and oxygen speeds up that process. Now, understand I'm a super taster, and my sniffer works really well, and so I will find things to taste and smell rancid before other people. When I go help people take ownership and control of their pantries, I usually end up kicking out most of their long-term stored oils because they smell like, well, rear end, basically, to me. And that means they've gone rancid. People may not have realized they've gone rancid, but when you eat rancid oils, not only does it taste bad, but it causes a lot of gas. So very unpleasant experience. 
Now, that's a that's a great way to store lard. Another way you can store lard is put it in your jars in the fridge because of the reduced temperature in your fridge. It will slow down the process of the oil going rancid. In fact, I am not the person to leave baking grease by my stove because I find that baking grease, if stored at room temperature within about two weeks, smells rancid to me. So there we go. Just giving you some context about where I'm coming from. Now, if it's a high quality like leaf lard without a lot of extra weird bits in it, it's going to last a little bit longer before it has weird smells come out of it. And then if you really want to extend the life, store it in your freezer. I've had lard in my freezer for two years that still tastes okay. I've got tallow from my freezer that's been there for two years that still tastes okay. I do know that it can eventually go bad because I found a five-year-old hunk of tallow, not lard, but tallow, so it's from the beef, that did in fact finally start tasting rancid. And I have those vacuum sealed in containers in my freezer. Also, regarding whether you should store it as fat or rendered as lard, I think it stores better at lard if you're as lard if you're looking at long-term storage. But sometimes it's nice to have some fat around, especially if you're a hunter and you want to make venison sausage and it's the, the, the meat is leaner than you want, then you can grind up some of that fat and put it in the sausage. However, it will go bad sooner than the rendered lard will in your even in your freezer and i've made that mistake too and i ruined like 40 pounds 40 pounds of venison once by not smelling my pig fat carefully that i had stored for about nine ten months in the freezer so i've learned that lesson the hard way you don't have to my advice to you would be if you're going to use it for lard and you know you're going to use it for lard render that out if you want to keep some back for making sausage if you're going to make it from lean venison or from lean beef do that, but only keep that in your freezer for four to six months. And then when you store the lard, if you think you're going to want to store it for a long time, store it in your freezer and take out one jar at a time into your refrigerator to use as you see fit. It makes great soap. It makes great like face creams and that sort of thing. I, in fact, just popped into a Homestead Glamour beef tallow Buddy butter, body butter, buddy butter, <laughs> body butter. And that absorbs so much better than the coconut oil based things. I would also look very seriously at if you can use your lard to extract your creations and your salves instead of coconut oil. It's that much better. I hope this really helps you out, guys. If you want to know more about me, head over to NicoleSauce.com and you can see all the stuff I'm up to the coffee. The Self-Reliance Festival, the podcast, it's all there in one place. Make it a great week. Well, I, I'll give you what I do. Um, I never actually make enough of it any one time to freeze it. Now, I also don't raise pigs. So if you raise pigs, you're going to get a lot of lard in one go. My opinion is that... Lard is something that we continuously produce. Rendered tallow, lard, call it whatever you want. We continuously produce this. Whenever I buy large cuts of meat, all of the trim beyond what I can use for ground gets rendered. And so, you know, I'll have three or four jars of different uh, lards, tallows in my freezer, or my refrigerator at any given time. And if I'm going to use it, 
to do something with. I generally, what I'll do is I'll take that jar out and set it on the counter um, a couple hours before I cook with it so it softens a little bit, it's a little bit easier to work with. And I throw it back in the refrigerator. And if I had a massive amount of lard, if I had more than I could use in about a year, I would probably give and or sell some of it to others is what I would do with it. Or the other thing you can do, and this is a really cool thing to understand about pig lard, is if you are an herbalist and you make herbal salves and things like that, probably the best fat carrier for an herbal salve, most of us you know, traditionally use olive oil. If you use pig rendered pig lard, pig fat, you're using a fat that's almost identical in chemical structure to human and the skin is very good at absorbing it. And I've done this. I've made my comfrey salve exactly the same way out of rendered pig lard as I have out of olive oil. And if I take it and I put a little bit of it on my arm with the olive oil, and then just a little bit up from there, put another little disc of it on with pig lard, and I wait an hour. The place where I put the pig lard is, you can barely tell anything was put there, but there's a glossy nature still to the olive oil. And that's because the skin has not really absorbed it the way that it will. So you can also find other uses for it, because I think a year is probably, if you're, if you're continuously producing this, then it's not like you need a five-year uh, storage, so I would find a way to use it within a year. Again, I don't freeze it. Things tend to go in the freezer and kind of get forgotten about. So I have a drawer, uh, uh, on the door of my refrigerator, you have those shelves, I have a, a, a shelf that's got you know three or four different uh, rendered uh, tallows or lards at any given time, including my baking grease. I will save baking grease, and I will also say that I get to a point where like I got enough, and I I, I may not save it all the time until I need more. I got one more little tip for you here on doing things like rendering beef fat into tallow. You can infuse beef tallow with really cool flavor. Here's here's one example. Recently, I bought a couple uh, roasts. And I trimmed off the excess fat from them. I did roast beef out of these. I took all that fat and I diced it up and I threw it in my little mini crock pot. I took one head of garlic, I cut it in half and threw it in there. And I took a handful, a big pinch I guess more than a handful, of rosemary needles and put it in there. I set it on medium and I let it run overnight. I then strained it and now you have rosemary garlic infused tallow for cooking. Really, really awesome. Don't use salt. Don't use salt in there. In my opinion, salt is something that we can control the flavor more directly onto the meat or vegetables that we're sautéing in the in the fat. But it's a great way to elevate things, and it doesn't take a lot of work. Now, I don't make 50 pounds of that. You know, I make half a, a pint jar of that maybe at a time. Another thing, this is another way to... Uh, to do this, to make this continuous. So this is less for the person that asked the question, more for the general audience. You'll often find, if you start doing what I recommend, which is buying large subprimals, doing your own cuts and stuff like that, that you'll end up with exactly what I said. You'll have a certain amount of lean, and you want about 20% by volume fat to go with that lean, not by weight, by volume. Kind of eyeball it. That For every eight units, two units of fat, right? So four to one, really. It's the same difference. And uh, you then you grind that. So you're going to have a time where you pull, like what I do, I have a, a shopping bag that all of my stuff that's for this gets vacuum sealed, gets put in that bag, and goes in one of my freezers. That way when I need it, it's all in one place. 
and I pull that bag out. And so what will happen is inevitably I'll, I'll, I'll buy some meat, and I'll be like, oh, I have enough lean to make four or five pounds of ground now. So I need my fat and my other lean. So I'll pull it out, and I'll take out about as much fat as I think I need, and at that point I'm going to use the grinder. And the grinder is going to get dirty. And the grinder is going to be need, need to be clean. So I'll take a certain amount of extra fat, and I'll put that fat through the grinder after, actually before I do the combined gr the combined grind for the 80-20 mix. Push that through, and I'll take the gr coarse ground fat and put it in the crock pot. It will render much easier for you. Just some thoughts. Anyway, let's move on, and let's hear from Nick Ferguson about misters and timers to go with them, and transplanting trees. <clears throat> hey, hey, Nick Ferguson here from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com with an Expert Council segment, and I have a few answers that should be rapid-fire easy ones, but I wanted to remind everyone that my tree sale starts January 1st. Every year I get emails from people bummed that they missed out, so make sure you set a reminder. Tree sales go live on the website RarePlantStore.com January 1st. All right, the first question. I was wondering what my options are in relocating a sort of mature fruit tree. Details, I have a 10 to 12 foot persimmon tree I'm wanting to put in another location on my property. It's about three and a half to four inches in diameter and it's surrounded by Chinese privet. I live in West Georgia, zone seven. Well, you got a couple options. Um, the easy button is to hire a company to bring in a tree spade and dig it up and transplant it with the truck. It's a massive four-part hydraulic shovel uh, mounted on the back of a big truck that cuts a hole in the ground where you want the tree transplanted, sets the plug of soil to the side, and then cuts the tree free of the ground in an identical shape, carries it over, and sets it into place. It's really easy. Um, it prunes the roots quite a bit, though, so you're going to have to prune the top if you do that. Um, alternatively, you can dig it yourself, just by hand. Most all of the roots will be in the top 8 inches of soil. I would make sure you do this after the tree goes dormant, which should be now or really dang soon, and I would just take care to keep the roots intact as much as you can. Um, then move the tree to the new hole that was already dug and ready for it to be planted, what you might want to do is um, get the tree mostly free and kind of block it up with boards. As you dig it and, and get it free of the ground, you can slide um, pieces of plywood or something underneath it as you dig it and kind of use its own trunk to lever it backwards um, to get it kind of up off the ground and set on something like a piece of plywood. Um, then you can slide that plywood onto a piece of tarp and just skid it along the ground and just move the whole tree like that. Um, I'd even take most of the soil from the first location to bury the roots. You'll need to prune it back so there isn't too much uh, top growth, and I'd keep it staked for the first year. Also, you'll likely need to summer prune to keep it from getting too top-heavy um, during the summer. You want to make sure that you've got it staked and pruned a little bit extra in the summer because if it gets too top-heavy and a storm blows through, it'll just knock the thing over. So you want to make sure you are uh, keeping it secure to the ground uh, for the first year so it can get some new roots uh, grown and and stabilized in its new location. You might even want to keep the, the stakes on there for a couple years 
to keep it secured and make sure you mulch it really well. Don't mulch it all the way up against the trunk. Leave a little bit of dirt showing around the trunk, but you can put a foot of wood mulch around those uh, freshly excavated roots to make sure they are put to bed for the winter really well. All right, on to the next one, and this one is about a misting timer. Uh, Jack, can you recommend a good misting timer? I'm looking to uh, mist for about 30 seconds every 30 minutes. I set up a misting bed under my deck, had good success getting fig cuttings to take root earlier this year, but the timer stopped working within about four months. I bought another, and it stopped working in even less time. Those were about $35 each, but if they don't last, well, yeah. Uh, This is Guy in Gun Spring, Virginia. Well, I have a whole write-up on how to set up a mist system with Amazon links to all the components over on my website, homegrownliberty.com forward slash mist system. That's it. I mean, pretty much all the components you need are right there with links. I would suggest getting the Galcon 4 station controller. It's what I set up for Jack. That's what I use, and it's an indoor rated controller so if you want to set the controller up close to the mist bed which there's no reason why you really need to um, you'll have to put it in a waterproof enclosure otherwise the controller wires are easy to run from a building to wherever the solenoid valves are located easy peasy um, yeah Galcon 4 station controller it's about 135 bucks on Amazon right now um, but they work for a long time Uh, I hope those answers are useful and helpful for everyone, including the people that sent them in. Don't forget, tree orders go live on New Year's Day. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. All right. Good stuff from Nick, and I do have a link to his page that explains misting systems right next to the bullet point for his segment in today's show notes. So if you uh, need access to that, just go look up today's episode, 3416, and you'll find it right next to the second to the last bullet point under Join Me Today to Discuss. And then right below that bullet point, you'll see how long should you keep at a job before moving to the next opportunity, me, and that's my anchor segment today. And uh, the person uh, is uh, Sobratic Electronic is the name on it. It's no real name, so we'll just call him Sobratic. He says, what is the minimum amount of time a person should stay at a job before moving on to a better opportunity? What I mean is, someone who is working a good job and a good opportunity, how long should they stay before seeking a better opportunity? I know people work crappy jobs and leave quickly, but if you have a good opportunity already, the risk I would think of leaving too soon would be, one, not staying long enough to have a potential backfall if your new opportunity doesn't work out. Two, job hopping too often might make future employers skeptical about investing you if they see you have a history of leaving past employers too often. What do you think? Okay. So, there is a legacy mindset from our father's time and our grandfather's time where people went to work for a place and they spent 20, 30, 40 years there and they got the gold watch and they retired. Those days are over in any belief whatsoever that they still exist and that companies are going to look out for you that way with some exceptions that I'll cover in just a second should be erased from your mindset. Now, the exception. There are some family-owned Relatively small businesses that still have the upward mobility that you're looking for if you're still trying to advance your career, where they really do take care of people. So if you're running a business like that and you're pissed because of what I just said, you're not in that group. 
I would say that less than 5% of jobs in America today qualify as such. Because I didn't just say the people owning the company, running the company, will look out for you. That number's probably higher. It's probably more like 15%. But they also have the upward mobility for a person building their career. So there are companies, maybe 10 people, and maybe the owner is genuinely concerned for his people. And he'll go, he'll cut his, like, I did it. I did it a couple times when I was running companies. I cut my own salary versus cutting my employees, or I cut mine where I had to cut theirs less when they were that small. Maybe you get that. But in a company that's small, what is your upward mobility? And unless it's a company that will allow you to pursue something to actually make the company bigger and grow with it, it can be limited. So you're looking for, like, to, to really be loyal, you got to have loyalty from that side, plus when you're, like, now again, if you're near retirement or whatever, whatever, right? Like, coasting the last five years, you know, a lot of people are like, I'm fine with that. In fact, if I can slow coast the last five years, fine. But when somebody's trying to build their career and develop experience, they need upward mobility. They need another opportunity. This is part of the playbook when you're going to be a mover. Because I was. I did a lot of things between 21 and my, my, my late 30s when I started doing this and walked away from it all. A lot. Way more than would be considered typical. And it was never a problem getting a job. But part of the game is you have to have good reasons why you're leaving and good reasons why this next person should take you in. And so what I just said was always part of my answer because the question will come up. If you're good enough, you'll get the interview. But then the question will be like, I've seen you've been like three companies in the last six years. Why? And part of that would be exactly that. I'm looking for a long-term. So no matter what you actually feel about that party, I'm looking for a long-term place to grow my career. These other positions have been seriously limited in my upward mobility. When I got to a point where there was no place for me to move up within that organization anymore, no place for me to learn more, I started looking for other opportunities. I'm currently building my career, and I'm seeking a place where I can, I can work out my career long term. That's a good answer. And the number one thing you need in any situation where you're negotiating is a good answer. There's another thing that you need to be doing, regardless of whether you're going to move around or not. You need to be building your reputation in your sector and niche to where a, an employer might say, well, if I only get them for two years, at least I get them for two years. If you build your reputation the right way, and this is, I'm going to give you an example of how I ended up working with Neil Franklin. I was working for a company called Sage Telecom, and I was planning on doing something like TSP. I didn't know exactly what yet, but I was going to do something that was an exit strategy. I didn't want to work for anybody else anymore. But the Sage opportunity, these guys were in the phone service business, and they needed somebody to, to be director of their internet marketing, which they knew nothing about. So I'm going to have a job with a boss that doesn't know what I do. I like that. They let me work from home, but there was a lot of excitement around it at the time. They, they had two different uh, technology committees that I was going to sit on, one for WiMAX and one for VOIP. This was exciting to me, plus it was a job I could do in my sleep, so I took the job. Very shortly after, just like the microtest job with Fluke, this is part of why I've moved. And again, you have a good story. I went to work for a company, and another company bought them, and the job changed. That's always a good answer as well. So if you're in a job and a merger happens, whether it actually affects you or not, it's a good time to go looking because you have a good story. Yeah? Well, anyway, I, I end up 
realizing I am not going to stay with these people. I didn't call a headhunter, even though I had a personal headhunter that I could have made a phone call to. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started talking to some people about like what was going on, just people I knew. I'm not, I didn't say, do anything. Within a week, I had five different companies reach out to me and say, hey, if you're available, at least talk to us before you do something. Why? Because I'm a marketer, and the f- number one product that I want to market, as long as I'm dependent on anybody else for a job, is me. And I don't care if you're an engineer, an electronics person, a computer programmer, I don't care what you are. That is what you need to be doing. You need a solid profile online of the things that you do, the projects you work on. You should have a blog or a social media account where you really talk about the industry. You should build up a reputation. You should build, you know... It's influencers today have a million followers or whatever, but an engineer with 5,000 followers? That's interesting to a company that needs an engineer. Why are people listening to this person? So build up that reputation so that those offers come in, if it's even rumored that you're available. Because this is what happens then. Yeah, Jack moves around a lot, but shit, if you can get him to work for you for a couple of years, imagine what he could do for you while he's here. Because his reputation is one of always making a place better while he's there. And that's, that is part of the angle that you have to take. But my real move on this is where I started. When I get to a point I can't learn anything else, and I have no hope of moving up anytime soon, and I still want to move up, I am gone. I am gone, I am gone, I am gone. Now here's the other side of it. You said you have a good opportunity. I would have to say if you have a good opportunity, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving an actual good opportunity? And you don't need to answer that question for me. You need to answer that question for yourself. And there's times to leave even what might be considered still a good opportunity. Going back to Flute Networks. Now, I'm going all the way back to the 90s. I was working for a company called Garrettcom. We were selling hardware, computer hardware, industrial-level computer hardware. The company was unwilling to really invest in some places that it said it wanted to go, like industrial automation and stuff like that. It's 1998 when I take this job. I have the number nine of nine regions in the world. I am the last place region. A year later, I am the second highest selling region in the company. I go from number nine to number two. And the guy that's number one, by the way, has two people underneath him, and I have no one. So he's a much larger region. I probably would have never caught him because he had... They had given him some people to work and expanded his region. So at least until I had built up that level and warranted that, I would have never caught the guy. However, we were selling almost 80% of our equipment into the telecom space. 1999, think, think, think. DSL rollouts were going, and we had one company that really competed with us in that space. It was Cisco. Everywhere else, we were incredibly weak as a player, and they were unwilling to invest in certain things that we needed to go after some, like oil and gas, industrial automation, etc. They just wouldn't do it, and they weren't going to do it. My clients start telling me, hey, um, we're canceling a lot of this shit that you have on your forecast. You might want to take that off. And that was just the ones that were being honest. And a lot of those, oh, no, it's all fine. And you could tell it was like, oh, they just want to, like, they're telling themselves that because they're worried about themselves. So I could see the entire sector that we were heavily vested in about to collapse. 
And a recruiter calls me, who, the guy that became my personal headhunter, wants to hire me to a company called Microtest. So I go to work for this company. I love the company. I love the opportunity. But why did I go into it? Relocation to Northeast. Not exactly thrilled about it, but a much better market than, than, than the Southwest market if the telecom industry is going to implode, which it was. Because you have government customers. They always have money. You have finance customers, and we're well away from 2008. They always have money. Banks, etc., right? Drug companies. Like, there was so much opportunity in that region. It was an established territory, and I went from being on my own as a salesperson to a manager with 41 sales reps. So now I'm going to learn. I'm going to get all this experience, plus I get the opportunity, plus I can make a lot more money. So I took that opportunity. And the reason I ended up eventually out of there was because 90 days after I took that job, The biggest competitor they had bought them out. It's a merger. So that gets spun into the story with the next employer. Why did you leave? Well, it wasn't the job that I took. And so if you're going to move, what you have to be doing is moving for a reason and be able to articulate that reason in a way that makes so much sense to the person that you're talking to in an interview. They don't give a shit. They just want you. Well, shit, you took that job. You wanted the job, the job changed, and as soon as you became available, somebody snatched your ass up. The other thing is, this is just a general interview tactic. I'm interviewing with several organizations right now to determine where is the best place for me going forward. Somewhere that needs to get said probably twice during an interview. Probably near the beginning and probably right about the end when they say we'll have an answer for you. Well, that's great. I look forward to it. I've heard a lot that I'm excited about today. I'm really interested in exploring this further. I do have some other people that I'm talking to right now, so the quicker the better. Close. Close, close. I don't care if it's a sales job, sell. And then one more thing about this. This is so important for people to understand. There will never be a day that you have more leverage in negotiating salary, wages, etc. than the day before you're hired and given an offer letter. With rare exceptions. If you're, a, if you're a, a rainmaker salesperson, you can leverage yourself in a position like, hey, you want me to keep doing this, then I need, some, I need a piece of action, whatever, right? But in most, like 95% or more. The most leverage you'll ever have with a company is the day that they hire you. And when they say something like, well, you know, we have this policy that we don't go over X when we hire somebody. At 90 days, we can, well, I think that's an excellent policy. I think that policy makes a tremendous amount of sense. And I have no doubt in my capabilities to deliver for you. So, since you're saying that you could do a higher wage at 90 days, when I need in my offer letter, is that commitment along with the metrics that I have to meet in order to qualify for that raise. Because what most people say is, okay, well, that, you know, well, and this is what I'll, because this, I'm going to tell you how I know this, because I know what happens. 90 days later, you go in, oh, well, we love what you're doing. Oh, I just, right now, I couldn't give myself a raise if I wanted to. My hands are tied. That's exactly the fucking language you're going to hear 99.9% of the time. Whether it's 90 days, six months, one year, whatever it is, whatever they told you, and next thing you know, you're getting your standard 3% bullshit raise that everybody got anyway. And they act like they did you a favor. 
if the negotiation over wages is contingent upon, hey, we're, we're, we're both getting to know each other, we need to have a track record, we could talk about this, you know, whatever the number is they give you, that's great, fantastic idea, love that you run your company that way, I am looking for a company that thinks that way. Because that shows me you've made a commitment to me, but I also have to make a commitment to you, and that's how we build an outstanding relationship long-term together. However, having been around the block a time or two, I need that stated in my offer letter. Because what are they going to do? They can say no, and then what you need to do is accept if you take the opportunity, you're getting the wage they gave you, and that fucking raise isn't coming. You can even say, look, I'll tell you what, in my offer letter, you make that agreement, and you don't have to have the full plan on day one. But in there, you make, you make an agreement that 30 days after I start, you're going to come to me with metrics that are specific and measurable and definable, and that, that I am due this raise at this rate that we have agreed to now at the end of that term if that plan is met. This sends a message. I'm not fucking around. I'm not yanking your chain here. I'm not pulling on your dick. Right? I am a professional. I am good at what I do. And I am negotiating from a position of strength. If you don't get that job, when you talk to that interviewing person that way, now this assumes you're talking to the person that has the ability, like a lot of jobs now, if they're higher level, good opportunity jobs, you're going to interview with five or six people. The person to have that conversation with is the one that has control over wages. Your direct supervisor or theirs, depending on the organization. You need to figure that out before you have the conversation. But when you do that, you negotiate from a position of strength. And if you are not offered the job because of negotiating from a position of strength, then you don't want it. Up to and including, you know what, we really can't do that. Okay, then I'm just going to assume that I'm going to be a regular employee here, and this is the wage I'm working with. Again... I will be speaking to other people. If there's anything you can do beyond this, assuming that you're interested, please let me know in the next week because I plan on making a decision soon, even if you don't. Always from a position of strength. And all of a sudden, the movement on the resume just goes away. And why isn't this person like every other person that walks through my door begging for a fucking job? Because they don't need me, and that translates into maybe we need them. This is my final piece of advice on all of this. When I walk out of an interview, I haven't done it for 15, no, it's more than 15 years, right? Uh, it's like 20 years now. But when, it, when I was in that part of my life, when I walked out of that interview, the number one thing I wanted in the mind of the interviewer was, God, I hope he doesn't fucking go work for our competitor. Because when I was hiring people, the, the, my, my big question, if I had to do anything beyond the basics to get somebody, do I care if they work for my competitor? And if the answer was no, I'm not doing anything additional. If I'm like, I don't really want them to work for my competitor, I'm going to go a little harder. I'm going to work a little harder to bring that person on board. Because I know that it's pretty likely that if I don't, they're going to. Yeah, anyway, with that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, Fridays now are Friday flashbacks, and I just want to kind of pre- uh, prepare you, or uh, just uh, pre-promote, I guess, tomorrow's Friday Flashback. Tomorrow is episode 7 of Friday Flashbacks, and it's an interview I did with Ron Hood, the Woods Master. And I designed the Friday Flashbacks so that when 
I did them, they could be very quick. And so there's no real new content. It's all template-driven. All I, all I add is this is the date that it was originally done, and that's it. It takes me two seconds, and boom. And I can knock them out in less than five minutes an episode. The whole thing, cut and paste, bring the, uh, the graphic in, all of it, less than five minutes an episode. And that's why I did that, to repackage that content so it doesn't get left. Tomorrow you will hear a good 10 minutes of new content, though, because Ron, Ron Hood was one of my best friends on planet Earth while we knew each other. And so there's a little bit of a tribute to Ron and his legacy in tomorrow's episode. With that, I also want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do and you want to help support us, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. A couple little notes on that today. One... If you're looking for gift ideas, I have combed through the T-SPAS catalog, which has over 500 reviews, and found the stuff that if somebody gave it to me, even if I already own it, I might be really happy about getting it as a gift. And all you got to do if you want to find the T-SPAS gift ideas for Christmas 23, go to the Survival Podcast and scroll down until, you'll, until you see Santa Val. If you're a new person to the show, Val is our logo, our, our Survival Podcast logo. Well, there's a logo image with Santa Val. He has a Santa hat on the Teenager made for me, God, like 10 years ago, a kiddo made that, and we've, we've used it over and over again. But it's the top 15 items that I recommend out of the catalog for gifts, just to give you ideas. Even if you don't buy one of them, maybe it'll give you an idea. Plus, this year I put the top 10 best-selling items out of T-SPAS for the whole year. Not all of them would be good gifts. Today's item of the day, though, would be a great gift. I haven't brought it around for about six months. It's the UTG Ranger Field Bag. You're talking about a duffel bag that you could take a small adult and cram them into it, throw them on your back, and carry them around. This is a big bag. In fact, the only real negative reviews about it on Amazon are that it's too big. We'll learn to read and use a ruler, folks. I'm sorry. This thing is awesome. It's incredibly durable. I discovered it back when I was still doing prepper conventions and traveling quite a bit. I was doing five, six events a year when I started to get my name out there. And we would take t-shirts to sell at the events to help pay for them. And shipping t-shirts, they're heavy when you're talking, you know, hundreds of t-shirts. So I did the old military thing and rolled them up, you know, six-inch tight roll, and packed this thing full. So it weighed about 150 pounds. I had to pay the overage to the airlines. It was still cheaper than selling them. And I used this to haul shirts all over the country. And when I stopped doing it, I started using it as a vacation bag. Now, this is a check bag. It's a, You can't use it as a carry-on. Well, no shit. You can put a human in it. It doesn't fit in the overhead, right? You wouldn't fit in the overhead. Um, but because you can wear it like a backpack, it's very comfortable to carry a lot of material. As long as you can handle heavy weight, even you know 100-plus pounds, it's much more convenient to me in moving through an airport to get my rental car or whatever than it is using it as like a roller bag or something like that. On top of it... Durable, durable, durable. So I was getting my CO2 tank filled years ago for my keg system for my home brewing, which I really don't do anymore. And I noticed a kid had one of these exact bags. And I said something to the guy filling. So Airsoft Places is, is a great place to get kegs filled with CO2 if you need CO2. So go down there. I see this kid come into the shop, and he's got this bag. And I said, wow, I have that bag, too. I use it for totally different reasons. The guy goes, they all use that bag. He's like, they all, because they have all this gear, they have to take field to field to field. It needs to be rugged and big. And so I'm like, okay, that's, that's kind of battle tested and proven. Uh, it's just a great bag. I also use it, I have one for my vehicle bug out kit. 
uh, that you can throw on the back of the truck and what have you. It's just awesome. Uh, check it out today. 51 bucks on sale today. It is on my list of gift items as well. Anybody that loves bags and has a use for this would love it as a gift. And at 50 bucks, it's a deal. I would say this bag's a $150 bag in value for 50 bucks. Check it out today, the UTG Ranger Field Bag. With that, check out tomorrow's Friday Flashback and the first time Ron Hood and I were ever on the air together. It's kind of a little bit of history of the prepper uh, movement of the modern age, honestly, for us too. And there's an image that will come out with that. This the first, like was ta- That picture was taken within the first five minutes of Ron and I meeting each other. And it, it, there's a good story tomorrow. So if you usually skip the flashbacks, I, I wouldn't this time. With that, it's been Jack Spirica with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.